0: Greetings Grace Point! Uh, I'd like to invite you all to uh, an event we're having on September 20th at 5 p.m. here at the church building on the lawn north of the building. We're having an an outdoor gathering with some singing and uh, so we would like to have you all come bring a lawn chair, uh, a face mask, and a refreshment and if you don't have a lawn chair come anyway we will have extra chairs and we do have a concern for your safety so we're going to be following the guidelines of the state so we're going to have our face covered we're going to maintain distance of six feet and uh, and so there's no hugging (laughs) no handshakes this time but uh, and the chairs would be Uh, position six feet apart but families can cluster together so we want to be safe but we want to have a good time and reconnect with one another it's been a long time since we've had a gathering so we're all looking forward to this and hope to see you all there
1: and so let's talk about Christ is God and I think for all of us, we need, let's go back to some of the basic New Testament evidences that, that Afshin uh, gave to us in plenty last night. But let me walk you through these. And again, these slides are available to you. And we'll be passing out, by the way, online after the conference, a 12-page kind of synopsis of the biblical basis of the Trinity and in some ways how that, how that comes together. So kind of simple. You can use it as notes in a Sunday school class. Something like that. That may be helpful. God is... uh, Christ is God. New Testament evidences. I think uh, something very important here to start out with, because many will say, well, Jesus never said he is God, so he's not God. Muslims say that all the time. Jehovah's Witnesses say that all the time. We see that kind of language fairly frequently. Jesus never said he is God. Maybe that troubles you a little bit as well. We'll see that he did. But the point is, uh, why didn't he? Have you ever thought about it? What if Jesus had come to earth? And here's the incarnate son, and he says, I am God. Well, for most people, we'd lock them up fairly soon, wouldn't we? Certainly, this guy's crazy, let's write him off. But then he does magnificent miracles, unheard of miracles. And so all of a sudden, he can make anything happen and by the way, this is what the Gnostic Gospels do, these ones that are rejected by the church, but like the Gospel of St. Thomas or the infancy narratives of, of St. Thomas. You have little Jesus, baby Jesus, not baby, but little child Jesus playing in a puddle with another little mud puddle with another kid, and the kid splashes Jesus, and Jesus cripples him. And then the father comes up, and he's really, you crippled my son? And he zaps the father, and the father's toast. He's done. He's dead. Uh, is this the kind of God that we worship? This is what some would like us to say. Look what Jesus did. But very differently, this is a God who comes very, very differently from what anyone expected. Now, you need to understand that during the intertestamental period, that means the time of Jesus, those two, three hundred years, there were a lot of ideas about who is the Messiah. Certainly son of David, son of God in that sense. But... Uh, Angels are called sons of God, but this one would be a a Messiah, a national conqueror, one who would free us from Rome. Others said, no, he really must be a divine figure, like the son of man in Daniel, who comes on the clouds and is given honor and glory and worship. He's worshiped by all nations. Who is this one? Some would even say, among the ancient Jews, he could be even God and man. By the way, this research is coming to the fore, really in the last several years, by leading rabbinical scholars. Most Jewish scholars until recently have said, no, no, he had to be a human Messiah, son of David, and that's it, he's not divine. We're finding there's all kinds of evidence to the contrary. The apocryphal works of first and second Enoch and other things that you don't need to know about right now. But what if he had come proving that he's God? Now think about it for a minute because what if none of us really had a choice? So here comes Jesus and he's doing this incredible stuff and saying he's God, worship me, or your toast too. What if he'd done that? What would Christian faith be? You know, there's some like a Nikos cousin or or Frederick Nietzsche that know all about the gospel in one sense, and then they reject it entirely. And others who have hardly ever heard the gospel, or T.S. Eliot, or or some of those, and Amy Carmichael, Helen Keller. These, as, a, as, as the truth of Christ seeps in, so, "Wow, this is the Son of God, and I believe." So. Turn the table around when people say, why didn't Jesus ever say he was God? And say, well, what if he had? And even then, would you believe him? There's something, I think, immensely, I want to say mysterious, beautiful. Because Jesus, as Kierkegaard said, is the incognito God. He comes clandestinely, what? Born of a, a girl, you know, with questionable circumstances. So from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Soon escaping into, into Egypt as Herod slays all the other children, two years and younger, in Bethlehem. So he's an, Ill, he's an immigrant, I don't know, illegal or no, but, but in, in Egypt, finally coming quietly back into Nazareth after Herod had died. Jesus probably wasn't very good looking. There's a lot going on here. And a carpenter's son, what a humble, humble role is that. His father Joseph, as I mentioned last night, Probably passed away. So as the oldest in the family, he'd be responsible even for his siblings for a while. There's nothing glorious about this. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Think about it for a moment. Jesus did say he was God sometimes. We just heard one of the questions along this line. When did he most forcefully speak of himself as deity? Well, in John chapter 5, he says it pretty clearly. And from the outset, you want to kill me. And I'm coming from above, you're from below. And a lot of language like that. And that the Father is working and I am working. The father has life in himself and he's given it to the Son to have life in himself. And whoever believes in the Son will have everlasting life. But whoever doesn't, you'll be judged. He's talking to the religious leaders time after time. And then we come to chapter 8 of John that we just talked about. Here he's saying he's the, good, he's the door, but then also the good shepherd. Well, good shepherd, what? Psalm 23, everybody thinks of that. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. Now Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. And then as, excuse me, this is the wrong one. I'm thinking John 8. I'm thinking John 10. Let's go back to John 8. That's getting more and more and more heated. It's just the, the, the whole chapter. And again, this is at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You have, you have very powerful things being said by Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 23. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Now, our English translations add he, but really that I am. Uh, If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. And they're saying, who are you? What do you think you're saying? And the temperature just keeps rising. We're children of Abraham. He says, no, you're children of the devil. And he was a liar from the beginning. And it goes on from there. And what? Abraham, uh, Jesus said that, that, that Abraham would rejoice to see him in his day. And they said, what? You're, you're not even 50 years of age. Before Abraham was, I am. This I am, I am, we see a number of times. Usually I'm the good shepherd or other things like that but that ego emi in the greek i am crops up over and over i am the door i am the i'm the way the truth and the life uh, i am the living water that sort of thing we see in our lord so who was he speaking to already they wanted to kill him already they were they were just furious and so right in the teeth of his enemies jesus drops the bomb i before abraham was i am we come to John 10 as well so we look at this, and there's the Good Shepherd analogy. And we come to that, I and the Father are one. Now, he uses an interesting word for one, heis, because it's a, a neutral. If, he, if he'd used the masculine in the Greek, it'd be like saying, I and the Father are the same person. But he uses the neutral. Now, it could mean other things, uh, because we become one with God in John 17. But Jesus lets the stronger term stand. Now, again, as I mentioned in the question answer, here and in John 8, Jesus could have easily defused the crowd, but they wanted to kill him. And both of these incidents, by the way, are on the Temple Mount of all places in all the world. Here is the house of God, the city of God, and he is the rightful coming king. I and the Father are one. And he didn't back out of that. He said, what, Elohim, God's going to even apply to you folks, but... All the more this one that the son has chosen and sent from heaven, that's me. And so they took up stones again to kill him. They understood as we should understand. He and the father are one, not as the same person, but as the same essence. That's what's really being communicated. There's another passage that I find fascinating. Now, remember, we're talking about before the enemies who already wanted to kill him. That's when Jesus says who he is. He's not telling it to the disciples all the time. In fact, he asked, as we heard last night, who do you say that I am? But let's go to the trial, this kind of ad hoc trial of the Sanhedrin late at night or early in the morning, and Jesus is silent before them. You remember how this goes? Look at Matthew. They're frustrated, they're angry because Jesus isn't answering anything. So they can't hang him, so to speak. Finally, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Now, that's the high priest adjuring him under God to say, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Psalm 2 is that promise to the son of David. You know, today I have become your father. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. So the idea of Son of God was a a way of speaking the Messiah. It may have had other implications, but... That's likely what the high priest was thinking. Are you saying you're the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus said, you've said so. In a sense, all right. But then he drops the bomb in the Sanhedrin. It is like, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now it seems a little odd to us, but remember, Son of Man was Jesus's title for himself. 80, 81 times in the gospels, he calls himself the son of man, the son of man. And that was an ambiguous term in one sense because because Ezekiel and others were addressed as son of man by God. But that one passage in Daniel, everybody knew. And that's where the ancient of days and one coming on the clouds, which means divine, as the son of man comes before him and again is given a kingdom an eternal kingdom all nations will worship, honor, glory. God does not give his glory to anyone else but himself, and so forth. That, that all of a sudden was like they went crazy. Then the high priest his closed and said, he's spoken blasphemy, he's worthy of death. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and what he did was take the highest sense of son of God. You don't even know what that term means. He is Messiah, but far more. Coupling it with son of man out of Daniel, He is the God-man that's being announced, and they did kill him. And so when we look at Jesus' own words, you have those events before the resurrection, and then with the resurrection the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, as Ephesim said last night, in the name of the Father, the Hashem, the name of God, the sacred name of God, which is, so to speak, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He yokes all three together. Those are powerful statements. Those are powerful statements. Well, the Gospels understood this. Uh, The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, approach it as we would approach it, from a more or less human perspective. What was going on in Jesus' life? The Gospel of John is that Christology from above. That is, now God is framing everything else for us. And so we read these passages that you know well. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning now is the absolute beginning. Before Genesis 1, same Greek words. In the beginning was the Word, as the Septuagint translated it. In the beginning, absolute beginning, was the Word. He was already there. And the Word was with God, as in His front, uh, before Him, so to speak, pros. And the Word was God. That is to say, He's not the Father, Rather, all that God the Father is, also, those attributes also belong to the Son. And that's made all the more clear by verse 3. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. If Jesus, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would like to say, is the first creation of God, then he would have had to create himself. Think about it. If everything ever created was created by the word, then... Where did he get into the picture if he's not eternal God? We go further in that John's prologue. Those first 18 verses shape the whole of how we are to understand the gospel of John. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. This one and only, the monogamous, one and only or only begotten. It can be translated really either way as scholars are i kind of figuring out today, in fact. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God, but the literal text, the hardest and most likely authentic reading, as the ESV and other translations put it, the one and only God uh, who is in closest relationship to the Father, he has made him known. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's clearly, Christ is God. Well, there's a lot of other texts, and we touched on some last night, and the only begotten God, or the Son of God. Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see, and yet believed. He's blessing us. In Acts, uh, addressing the uh, Ephesian elders in Miletus, as Paul is going back to Jerusalem, he speaks of the church of God, Which he purchased with his own blood. Romans 9, 5. There's the Jews are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. There's a lot of texts like those. But like John 1, there are three or four other high Christologies. These just say it outright. The sun is the image of the invisible God or the icon or the idol. We're to worship this one. The firstborn over all creation. That means the chief heir of all things. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, wow, not only creator, in him, all things hold together creator and sustainer. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, all his fullness dwell in him. And if we didn't get it in chapter 1, Paul gives us another chance in chapter 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. We talk about two natures. All the fullness of deity. Theotes, the word for deity, means all that God is in his attributes. All of that, clandestinely, is in Christ, in bodily form. So we see complete godness in a text like this, and not quite complete humanity, but getting close as the two come together, two natures without confusion, without separation. Philippians 2 is another one that Afshin mentioned last night, who being in very nature God, that morphe, that very form God or nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't go around saying, hey, I'm God, you need to worship me and bam, 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 and so forth. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He humbled himself doubly so, becoming a very humble human being, but then also the humiliation of the cross that he suffered for us. Hebrews one is yet another, the first few verses, the whole first chapter really, speaks of Jesus Christ as deity, even as chapters two, three, four, five, and so forth, speak of his deep humanity. Probably Hebrews more than any other place, puts the deity and humanity of our savior side by side. Quite fascinating really, but here we read of his deity. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, that stamp of identity of his being, the very being of God, is there radiating through our Lord, even in human form. And as we read in Colossians, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Wow. Wow. Well, I mentioned Kierkegaard's statement, Jesus is the incognito God, because even for Jesus, it's the indirect evidences of our Lord that are even stronger than those explicit statements. And you might remember that, that the epistles don't go around arguing, well, Jesus is really God. Seems with the Carmen Christi of Philippians 2, the hymn to Christ, that they already believed that he was really God. That's Thomas' confession. They were just affirming again. So we don't see a long apologetic for Jesus being God. That was the faith of the church. We start looking at Jesus' attributes, his preexistence. Restore to me the glory I ever had with you from before the world began. This is high priestly prayer, John 17, hours before he would go to the cross. He is omnipresence and so forth. Again, Jesus Christ today, yesterday, yesterday, today, forever the same. His works, his miracles, his forgiveness of sins, his being creator of all ever created, he is not only subject to the Spirit and obedient to the Spirit, but we see him to be the baptizer of the Spirit, the one who can send forth the Spirit with the Father. There is a certain sense of lordship over the Spirit. If the Spirit's God, then what does that say about Jesus? His titles, some of them son of man, God, King of kings, Lord of lords, title of the Father as well as the Son, we can go on from there. And Jesus was worshipped. How dare a righteous prophet be worshipped? No prophet would consider that, yet he accepted that worship uh, repeatedly, didn't he? And so we look at all of this together and we say, wow, what an extraordinary Lord we have. In the first Christian centuries, the church was warding off wrong ideas about Christ and struggling to find language. How do we speak of this one we believe is the Son of God but don't quite know how to articulate? Remember this well. The church was Trinitarian in its experience. They experienced Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they didn't have any categories to put together. There's nothing like it in paganism. Thank you, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Oneness Pentecostals. That's just not true. There's nothing like Trinity. And they struggled to find words to express what they were seeing in the scriptures. And people would come up with facile explanations. They say, you know, that's just not right. He's He's not an emanation of God or this or that. He's really human. And yet he's God at the same time. And so they were struggling to find the language to put it together. But Trinitarian, they were. And there were two primary railings, so to speak, that were directing orthodoxy in those uh, those first two and three centuries. One of those was what we've seen, the baptismal confession of Matthew 28, 19. We see already with Justin Martyr around 150 and others explaining the Christian faith by that baptismal formula, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Justin didn't get it quite right, But already we saw, as we saw last night, the Apostles' Creed, already we see primitive forms of the Apostles' Creed in 150 and on from there, worshiping the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as we saw last night. So on the one hand is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian formula. And the other one was John 1, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we're not talking about a hierarchy of ontology or being in our Lord. Rather, we're talking about Christ is really God or the Son is truly God as the Father is God. So how do we put all this together? That was their struggle. And so, yes, we come to the question then, well, then how is he man? If he's fully God, that was clearly enunciated at Nicaea, but much before that as well, but by the whole church coming together, and the Nicene Creed we'll look at later. But then how is he man? What's going on here? They would have to look at texts like the one we know so well for Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, that's a human, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful, what? Mighty God? Everlasting Father? Prince of Peace? Then we go back to his humanity. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. But this child born to us is the El Gibor, the Mighty God. That phrase is only used one other time in all the Old Testament, and that's a chapter later in Isaiah. And it's clearly Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, the El Gibor, the Mighty God. What do you do with passages like that? In Zechariah 12, 10, one of my favorite texts. I, the Lord, will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Now this is Yahweh speaking. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. How do you pierce God? And they will mourn for, wait, him, as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him, as one grieves for a firstborn son." That language, only child and firstborn son, flows right into the New Testament for our Savior. So, starting to put all this together, how do we say it, that Jesus is truly God and man? Well, there were some, Apollinarius was a good friend of, he agreed with Nicaea altogether, Jesus is really God, but how is he man? Apollinarius said, well, he must be be God on the inside and human on the outside. His body and his appetites and emotions, that's human. But really on the inside, his rational soul and will, all of that's divine. He's kind of a coconut. He's brown on the outside and white on the inside. That won't work. Another said, and Nestorius, and Nestorianism continues today, in some traditions in the Far East, But Nestorius said, you know, there's so clear two natures, there must be almost two persons. And so kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, here's Jesus, here's the son speaking sometimes and other times it's the human Jesus speaking. It's almost as though there's two different persons in the same body. That too was inadequate. Others wanted to merge those natures together. And so the church came both at a council of Ephesus in 431 and then chalcedon 451 to confess this that in the incarnation god the son the logos assumed a human nature there was never to be a baby jesus running around and then god said i like that kid i think i'll 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 indwell him rather in the incarnation the son assumed a human nature a complete human nature accepting sin there's some powerful lessons out of all this, many more than I'll share too. Christ's divine nature was not always suppressed during his public ministry. The Savior's sonship and innate authority were often the point of his teaching and miracles. His submission to the Father and anointing by the Spirit do not negate the active operation of his divine nature. He sometimes acted as God, even Lord of the Spirit. For this reason, as the disciples in the boat, when he walked on water, calmed the sea, got into the boat, they were astonished. Jewish people don't bow down and worship, but they did to our Savior. We, like the disciples, do well to worship before our Lord. I just like art, so I throw it in once in a while. a, a German rendition of Jesus and the children. What about his humanity? Christ's deity does not impede the reality of his humanity, his growth from infancy to maturity, his human temptations, though not from sin within, his perfection through trials and suffering to become our high priest. Jesus' human struggle to submit to the will of God evidently was not easier than for us. Indeed, perhaps with the cross, Gethsemane, far harder. Jesus Christ went before us as our brother in the flesh. He is our pioneer. He's cleared the way out. He's conquered sin, death, and Satan. More than Paul, John, or Mary, Christ himself is our supreme human example. And so contrary to what some imply, the strongest believer is not exempt from difficult trials and temptations. And so, all of this has immense importance for our own salvation as well. If you walk away with nothing else, walk away with this. Because Jesus Christ is both God and man, his death on the cross has infinite value for all who believe. You want to say it with me? Because Jesus Christ is both God and man, his death on the cross has infinite value for all who believe. And so, Christological orthodoxy. You'll read a lot of books and you wonder kind of where are these people coming from. Here are keys that set what's being said of Jesus inside or outside true Christian orthodoxy, preexistence. The son came into this world everlasting in the past. His virgin birth. He was conscious of his divine sonship. There are literal miracles. He didn't find rocks on the Sea of Galilee and happened to hit them luckily in the storm. Rather literal miracles. For knowledge of his expiatory death, he came to give his life a ransom for many. Bodily resurrection, physical return to earth, two full natures, one person in all of this. Isn't that extraordinary? A friend just sent me this, a picture out of Ely or Ely Cathedral near Cambridge in England. You'll look there and you'll see a cross. And then out of the cross flows a kind of blood, but it forms two for the two natures of our Lord and then begins to form the three of the Godhead. I think that is eloquent in sculpture for what we believe. Our Savior, we worship you. Your immensity is far greater than we can comprehend, and yet we follow you as the disciples by faith. Lord, as you are our teacher, as the Spirit is our teacher, give us understanding that we may worship you and follow and obey you with all of our life, and we pray it in Jesus' name.